Let's hear some of that movie chat. Credits roll by and I tip my hat. Credits roll by, I want to know more right away. Let's have some of that movie chat. Credits roll by, tell me who did that. Life in the credits is where I want to play. Welcome to Life in the Credits. This is the show where we learn about entertainment by chatting with people who work in the industry. I'm Susan. And I'm Ben. And here we're discussing the film Do the Right Thing. And joining us today is our special guest, Tim Davis. So welcome, Tim. Hey, Tim. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're happy to have you here. We're excited very to excited. Talk. Very excited to talk to you today. Yes. So, Tim, can you tell us a little bit about what you do in the entertainment industry? Sure. It's most simply put, I am an actor and a writer. So most of... My day is uh, centered around those two activities of, you know, reading scripts, uh, looking at audition material, trying to get auditions. I'm a big believer that the there's so many variables in the entertainment industry that we cannot control. Mm-hmm. Kind of the only thing that I can control is my skill proficiency. Right. The thing that I, I do make sure I do is I, I get up and I act every day. Yeah. Uh, analysis every day and I try to write every day regardless of whether you know I have an audition tomorrow or I have a job or I have something I'm, I'm going to get up and do that every day that's the one thing I can control yeah mm-hmm. totally so what, what does that mean when you say you want to you want to act every day like what does that look like when you're not on set um so th- there's two things th- there's two components to that one is sort of a private component and then one is is, is a more um, um, communal component. So every day I will get up and I will do some script analysis on some sort of scene. When I kind of don't have something I'm working on specifically for an audition or for a project or for class, I'll usually pull out some Shakespeare. Oh, nice. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, uh, I think I'm right now working on Othello, which I might put up um, at the actor's studio. Cool, um, nice. What I'll do is I'll, I'll I'll go through that scene and I'll you know I'll, I'll do all the classic like scansion of it and and um uh, the script analysis of that and you know personalizing what's going on uh, for my character in that scene et cetera. So I'll I usually do that every morning. It's one of the ways I wake up. And then I'm really lucky. Uh, I'm in an acting class, um, uh, with a bunch of really fantastic actors, and we make it a priority to try to rehearse. We make it a uh, we endeavor to rehearse every day. Obviously, that doesn't necessarily happen every day but the idea is that uh, uh we rehearse as much as possible whether it's material for class or audition material etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah great that's fantastic um so can you tell us about any of the specific projects you've acted on or written well um so most of uh the acting projects i've done i, I guess the, the way to separate them i, I guess it's just simply like theater and film and tv yeah uh, theater i always find really what's the word i'm looking for there's an ephemeral, there's a ephemerality. Is that a word? Yeah. 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 <laughs> but to theater, right? Cause it's like snow, right? right? Like if you're there, if you're a witness to it, it's this beautiful thing. And then, you know, a month later it's gone. So, um, I started doing a lot of theater, you know, when I was the second I could get out of, um, college, I graduated early uh, in college. Um, yeah. so that I could get to New York and start doing theater there. Um, I did, I did a lot of theater in New York. I did regional theater. I think probably, you know, my favorite things I've ever worked on in terms of theater was, uh, I originated, uh, the role of Dell in a play called Cowboy versus Samurai. Oh, nice. uh, cool. I did, I got my equity card, my union card by doing uh, Richard Greenberg's take me out. Okay. I think is on Broadway now. I think Jesse Williams is doing it on Broadway now. Oh, okay. Cool. Wonderful Pulitzer Prize winning play that is absolutely gorgeous, which was really um, 
a wonderful experience, but also themes of it are gorgeous. And there's the writing of it is gorgeous. And so many of the scenes are so powerful and moving. There's about 90 seconds of full frontal male nudity in the play. Mm-hmm. Um, not really. And, and none of the scenes are explicitly sexual. I just right. think there's sort of an implied sexual tension, but there isn't any sort of sexuality. Mm-hmm. But what I remember mostly about that, that experience was we were three of us were coming from New York to do that play. And as we were flying down, all we were talking about was the nudity. Yeah, sure. You know, there, there's a famous shower scene in it. My character, I'm actually the first one that appears nude in the play. So the, the plot of the play, for those who aren't familiar, it's a, a fictional baseball team, but it's clearly supposed to be like the New York Yankees or something. Mm-hmm. Sure. It imagines if a, a, the best player in the team, who is sort of an amalgamation of like Derek Jeter and Alex Rodriguez at the time, okay. just sort of casually came out and announced that they were gay. Okay. And sort of the consequences of that. And so my character is the first character who, in the very first scene, walks out of the shower nude and runs into that lead character after they've mm-hmm. made that announce that they've come out and I'm completely nude when that happens and it's sort of about my homophobia and my discomfort mm-hmm. in front of this guy who is not sexually interested in me but the fact that I am nude in front of him is um, right. a problem for me <laughs> um, so uh that's the way the 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 sexuality is dealt with in that okay. play. so as we're flying down and as we got to got to, to Texas and meeting everybody from the cast it's mm-hmm. all we were talking about was like how we're going to deal with the nudity how we're going to comfort with it the, the director, Terry Martin, who's just a wonderful, wonderful director and a wonderful man, you know, put no pressure on us. But he's like, listen, you do this in your own time, whatever's comfortable for you. But just know by the first preview, you got to be naked when it has to be naked. I'm yeah. not going to do that. He was wonderful about it. But I just noticed that, like, again, it's this gorgeous three hour play. And all we were talking about was like the yeah. nudity. Yeah. And I'm like, there's so there's so much more. Right. To do play than like drop trow right (laughs) so what what i remember specifically about that play about the rehearsal process was we do a very early rehearsal with like all the designers there right so designers there the right the set designer and everything we've got like the little you know the tape on the uh on, on the floor in the stage we're doing and we get to block we go to block that that scene uh the one of the the scenes where we're all naked and so we do it once I think I pulled my shirt off for it. Like we're all in like jeans and t-shirts and stuff like yeah. that. Right. Pulled shirt off for one. A couple of the guys pulled their t-shirts off. And then we like in the second to last run, I think a couple of us like got down to like our, our underwear or whatever, right? Like our boxer briefs, we took off our pants, or whatever. And uh, Terry, again, being so generous and so kind and considerate was going to call the rehearsal after that. Like we had done that last one in our yeah. boxer He's a great guy. We'd run it, you know, all day. He's like, great guys. It's wonderful. We'll come back tomorrow. We'll get back to work on whatever other scenes we needed to do. And I walked up to him just real quiet. I'm like, can we do, can we do just one more, one more run of it? And I think yeah. he knew what I was going to do. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Let's do one more guys. Let's do one more. So we get in a place, we all get in a place where, you know, half of us in our boxer briefs and right before they called action, I just dropped my pants. Mm. I just kicked my underwear off to the side and stood there completely naked. You're right for good. And everybody, I'm hoping for good reason. I hope it was the shock that I, 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 <laughs> everybody's broke out laughing for like a good minute. <laughs> but then after that, the seal was broken and you know, anytime it required us to be nude, it, it, we did it. It wasn't yeah. an issue. We got to get on with doing the play. Right. Uh, so I, I was always proud of that moment in that play that I sort of was able to break through whatever anxiety that we were right. all 
Yeah. To make that play. That's a fascinating story because I mean that, you know, there are moments in acting you have to be vulnerable and something like that where, you know, it's live. So it's not like it's going to be edited and people won't be able to see certain things. It's like, nope, this is, yeah. people are going to be able to see everything. Yeah. So yeah. at it's, I mean, I mean, it's very simplest, right? Acting is being, is behaving privately in public. Right. It's not as if you forget that the audience is there. It's not that as if you forget you're, you know, on a stage, but you have to behave as if. Yeah. So what kind of uh, TV and film projects have you been on? Oh, um, so, you know, again, I started in New York. So like everybody, I did like an episode of Law and Order. Right. Sure. Yeah. Classic. <laughs> <laughs> but awesome. <laughs> and uh, I did a couple independent films. You do like, like every actor, you do a bunch of shorts. And then um, I think the first like big independent movie I did was a small part in Steven Soderbergh's The Girlfriend Experience. Yes. Cool. Yeah. It was a bit of a surreal experience because, you know, what the the concept of that movie was, was that Stephen was using non-actors for the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew Stephen a little bit. I knew the writers a little bit. And this, the male star of the movie, Chris Santos, had actually been a friend of mine. Oh, hmm. cool. For like nearly a decade. My survival job when I was in New York, um, which, you know, every artist, you know, need, almost every artist needs for a while, yes. right? Yeah. Um, I was in the personal training industry. I'd ran a, oh, a gym. Cool. And I had such a great amount of insecurity about the fact that I wasn't acting full time. Mm-hmm. And at the gym that I, I managed, which was a fairly fancy gym, we would get a lot of um, you know fancy actors that would come in and fancy directors that would come in. And Steven actually had been at that gym for a little bit. Oh, okay. And I had never mentioned to anybody. I, I kept a very binary existence of like my acting and theater and the writing. It was all completely separate. Quick tangent, quick sidebar. Mm-hmm. That play, Cowboy versus Samurai, that I did, I told almost no one that I was an actor at the gym. Oh wow! Yeah. And one of the cast members of that play, Cowboy versus Samurai, um, as I mentioned, was Joel De La Fuente. Joel had gone to, I think, school with Billy Crudup. Um, oh wow! Who, uh, and they had remained friends. Billy Crudup was one of my idols as an actor. He's great. The three guys that I looked at that I went, oh, I, that's who I want to be, were Billy Crudup, Philip Seymour Hoffman, mm-hmm. and Edward Norton. Yeah. Uh, it's a good and, list. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and unbeknownst to me, Billy had come to see our play. Billy also worked out at the gym that I managed. Oh, and okay. Like I said, I kept it very separate. Yeah. I'm at the gym. I'm getting, like, my shake. I'm ready to, like, train some clients or whatever. I'm up front with, like, all the other trainers and stuff and billy walks in and he looks at me and he goes hey i'm like hey how are you and he's like you were in joel's play <laughs> and again like probably 90 percent of that gym i made an effort to keep those things completely separate out of whatever weird sense of shame that i had about sure yeah i felt like he was blowing my cover a little bit <laughs> like whoa whoa, whoa. <laughs> he was unable to take in that this guy who was a hero of mine yeah acknowledging I'd done a play and so I was sort of immediately terrified he's like uh yeah yeah and I'm already like trying to figure out how to get out of the conversation and he looks at me he goes you were terrific man that's awesome oh my god that's amazing I was like oh yeah thanks man thanks great gotta go and I like, ran over like the lap machine and started like stretching so I don't believe when I did girlfriend experience because they were using non-actors they put me in the movie I don't think Steven knew I was an actor yeah but I, that I trained. The writers of the movie who were, were Brian Kaufman and David Levine, who would eventually, you know, put me in billions. Mm-hmm. 
really great friends and, and uh, sort of informal mentors to me in a lot of ways. Um, I don't think they knew at the time. Yeah. So it was this very surreal thing to like, again, Steven Soderbergh, I believe is, in my opinion, one of the greats who have ever done it. His right. Movie. Yeah. He's, he's yes. amazing. So well-crafted. And, yeah. and in this weird way, it was everything I dreamed. I mean, it's independent film, right? I'm doing a Steven Soderbergh movie. Where my scene, we're on the Lower East Side in this bar. We're really in the bar, right? I'm doing it with one one of my best friends. There's so yeah. many things about that scene that should have been exciting. And it was, but there was also this weird anxiety of like, okay, but I, I, I'm an actor, but I haven't told anybody I'm an actor. Now I'm in this movie that's going to be notable because he's using non-actors. Yeah. A lot of imposter syndrome. <laughs> sure, yeah. That prevented me, I think, from enjoying it as much as I could. Yeah. Uh, but that that was that was the first movie I um, I did I did girlfriend experience I did a couple other you know shorts like everybody does um, I wound up doing billions I wound up having a small recurring role on billions mm-hmm. which I think as a result of the fact that Brian and Dave wrote girlfriend experience I had stayed friendly with them yeah and I think you know to whatever service I can be of of any other young actor out there I think. I think so much of my imposter syndrome and my anxiety about being at the gym was a result of the fact that I wanted my career path to be linear. Yeah. I wanted to do some really great theater shows and somebody to notice me and to get into some cool independent films from that and do some TV spots. Yeah. Sort of be this very clear ascent and almost no one's career works. Right. Right. What it is, is sputters and stops and, you know, detours and side routes and, um, you know, reversals of fortune. Yeah. I think the other thing to, to know too, is like, if you have friends in the industry who are doing well, right. Who, um, I, again, I think when actors are struggling or artists are struggling and they, they have a friend who's doing well, or there's always sort of this, you know, can I ask a favor of them? Yeah. Or why haven't they extended themselves to me to like mm-hmm. a, an opportunity? The thing to know is whenever like one of your friends like sort of has a jump off like that, A, they're trying to make it work for them. Yeah. That that they've got their own priorities. They've got their own anxieties. They've got a list of ambitions that they're trying to manage. And but on top of that is that especially when they're on a project like that, right, everybody on the project has a list of, of potential favors they can do. Right. Of course. Not merely like, oh, my friend's on a show. Why haven't they you know, brought me in for an audition? It'd be great for them to do that. But everybody's got a list of actors that want yeah. okay, the director does, the writer does, the showrunner does, the casting director does, the lead of the of, of the show does, the second lead of the show does, the producers do. Right. right? So when you know your fancy friend is going to try to do a favor for you, they usually have to kind of like negotiate which favor is doable yeah so when you ask a favor right i I just would always try to make it like a very specific doable favor that's awesome yeah and i like what you said about because we've heard from a lot of people networking is really important it's really important to maintain good relationships and i like what you said like part of maintaining those good relationships is not asking people for too much or stuff that they can't do and making them feel like putting them in an uncomfortable position. I, I love what you said, like, make sure your ask is something that's reasonable and specific that they can say yes or no to. I think that's great, great advice. Yeah. Because you're going to, even if you don't get what you want, you've maintained, you've kept that relationship positive and they'll be like, oh, well now I do see something I can help Tim with. And yeah. So I think I thought that that's awesome. 
Um, I wound up doing billions. I wound up having a small recurring role on billions, which like I said, I, I felt very lucky they invited me back my, my first day. Um, I've never talked to anybody in the show about this, but my first day was, was a really rough day. Oh yeah. Hmm. Why was that? When they invited me to be a part of billions, um, what was pitched to me was, Hey, we've got this role for you. If the show gets picked up, it'll probably, probably recur. Hmm. We don't have any lines for you right now. But when you get to set, we'll have some text for you. Uh, and the, the basic concept of the scene is you'll be serving the family dinner. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm like, okay, great. No problem. So I get uh, to the set. They tell me my lines, which to this day I know, which yeah. is like, I'm going I'm, I'm to serve the food to them. Um, and let's see if I remember it now. Uh, okay, guys, we have free range, urban crusted, organic chicken breast, grilled asparagus tips, uh, and mashed potatoes. Enjoy. No problem. Now, yeah. listen, I, I, I don't mean to brag about this in any way, but like, I have played Hamlet. Yeah. <laughs> I have played Macbeth. Right. I worked with Juliet a handful of times. I did a Harold Pincher play where um, I had, for a 90 minute play, I had like 98% of the text. Yeah. Knowing my text is not an issue for me. Right. <laughs> so we get on set. I'm like, no problem. It's a food order. Right. And then they explain what the scene is going to be to me. And I'd never been on a set this fancy. And what I also had never done before was a pilot. Mm. And the thing about a pilot is there's going to be an extra, in our case, there was an extra 20 or 30 people on set yeah, who are there to like do whatever. Right. And it, 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 they don't really have jobs specific to the shooting. Right. right? Most of a bunch of guys in ties walking around with cups of coffee and looking over everybody's shoulder <laughs> yeah. looking, running correctly. Right. It produces, I think, an extra level of anxiety. Yeah. So I didn't realize that. I just felt a little tense when I got on set. Part of the anxiety of, you know, and also knowing that Brian and Dave had asked me to do that and them being friends mm-hmm. and have asked so many people to do this, not wanting to let them down Yeah, right by them. So we go to do the scene and the way the scene is going to work is I'm going to take these plates off a working stove. Yeah. I'm going to turn and then a giant German shepherd is going <laughs> to run between my legs <laughs> I'm going to let the German shepherd run between my legs. I am then going to come around the kitchen island while like the family is having a discussion. I need to set these plates down in front of the actors, by the way, don't block their faces. Right. (laughs) The actors are kids. um, So they're not really going to help you in terms of like timing this out. So it's Mm -hmm. your chance to figure out how to get these plates down onto the counter without making any noise or blocking their face for the dialogue. Once you get the plates down, your job is then to run back around the kitchen counter, duck under a light, jump over a sandbag, come around one of the other cameras, land back in your spot and go, okay, guys, we've got free range urban crust organic chicken breast, we have asparagus tips, mashed potatoes. Enjoy. <laughs> we start doing this scene and it's fine. Yeah. I had noticed that on the counter there, those weren't the only things in the counter. Right. So I'm saying three things, but there was like six things in the counter. There's rolls and there was uh, uh, a bowl of carrots or something else. And so I just started saying, okay, guys, we've got free range over crusted chicken breast, grilled asparagus, tits, mashed potatoes, et cetera, et cetera. Enjoy. And script supervisor comes over me and says, cut out the et cetera, et cetera. Don't say it. And I think again, for, for newer actors, that's the thing to know is like there's sets you can improv on. Yeah. Right. Right. And there's sets where like, they're not going to be so tight about the dialogue. And there's other sets where like, you say it word perfect. Yeah. And 
you don't always have to do that, but it is much better to be word perfect mm-hmm. and not need to be than to be that person that always kind of like paraphrase their dialogue, but now you're doing Aaron Sorkin. Now you're doing Shonda Rhimes. Now you're doing compliment yeah. Levine and you have to say it word perfect, not be able to for whatever reason that threw me a little bit. And then I also think because I knew we only had so many takes with the dog. Mm. Yeah. Cause there's a route that the dog is running. Uh-huh. On, and the dog was running really fast. And I got worried that I was going to like wind up accidentally kicking the dog. Yeah. Mm hurting the dog so between all that the next time we do it i come back around and i can't get the line out of my mouth so we reset no big deal we go to do it again i can't get the line out of my mouth oh no we must have done i don't know how many takes i cannot get the line out of my mouth and inside i'm melting yeah brian and dave are there Damian Lewis is there, an actor who I have a great amount of respect for. Malin Ackerman is there, who's an actor I respect. There's 30 people on this set, like it's a huge production, and I can't get a food order out of my mouth. And um, it was a really rough day. I never got the line out the way that uh, I thought they wanted it or the way I wanted to deliver it. I remember specifically, they were so great about trying to help me out. Mm-hmm. Um, Copeland, in the showrunner, comes up to me uh, midway through, and he's like, hey, man. Just say chicken and vegetables. That's all it is, right? Chicken and vegetables. Say chicken and vegetables. So he actually took the pressure off me needing to say the line perfectly. Yeah. I think probably so they could get everybody else's coverage and we didn't need to stop the scene. And then at some point they were like, you got to say the line. And I just felt like I never got it. I wound up leaving the set that day feeling really disappointed in myself, feeling very mortified, feeling like they weren't going to have me back. I just really felt like I let everybody down. So what was so funny is when, when I got the next episode that I was going to do, A, I was so grateful and excited and happy. I got to redeem myself. But, but what I laugh about is that scene for that next episode is I'm walking into the kitchen and Damien Lewis acts is making breakfast for the kids. Yeah. My first line, as I walk into the kitchen and see Damien making breakfast for the kids, my first line is, am I out of a job? <laughs> <laughs> Reading the script in Los Angeles and literally throwing it across the room. <laughs> they know, they know, they know. It's the first day. Yeah. I don't know if that was on purpose or intentional. I yeah. imagine it was. Those guys are really smart and really funny. Yeah. But so that that was my first day on on that on on that set, and I'm. Uh, it was not a great day. Yeah. I never talked to them about it, um, but they obviously had me back for. Yeah. A lot I mean, of episodes. So right. Kind of, it didn't destroy my career. No. Um, well, speaking a little more specifically, I don't know how many specifics you can go into, but you do have a show in development right now. Could you tell us kind of how that process works? How do you get your show picked up or how do you start working with a streaming service or studio on that process? So my my writing partner and I, uh, my writing partner, Saddam Noel, mm-hmm. um, who's a wonderful actor uh, in her own right. If you've seen Glow, mm-hmm. uh, she's she was cherry bang on glow uh she's done a bunch of other stuff she's a wonderful actor and writer so she's my writing partner so we had written this pilot script and then her rep shopped it around a little bit oh cool and there was a production company headed by a, a fairly fancy actor who had interest in doing it i think that's the thing to know whenever i see advice whether it's on twitter or instagram or in a yeah. book I'm always like be careful yeah. because most advice it's well-meaning, but I think very often it tells half the story. Yeah. So what you hear about a script, you know, when writing a script is like, you've got to just write something undeniable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I understand that because the, the undeniable comes from the idea of like, you can't, you can't anticipate what the market wants. Right. Because if you could, if there were a system, 
by which you could identify what thing would be profitable or successful. Everybody would do that. Right. right. Yeah, like exactly. It's a premise of William Goldman's nobody knows anything. It's mm-hmm. not that people are stupid, but it's that if we knew categorically, objectively, what projects would fail and which projects right. would succeed, no project would fail. We mm-hmm. would just follow the formula that led to a successful project. Right. So that's where the, 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 the premise of like just write something undeniable comes from. And I think that's true. I think you've got to write something great in the same way, like your audition should be undeniable in the same way your performance should be undeniable, but that's half the battle. Yeah. And the other half of the battle is recognizing that your script not only has to be great, it has to have some utility to somebody else. Hmm. So also know if that's what you're going to write, the production company that's interested in you, they're probably going to have somebody in mind for that. Yeah. Right. So it's not merely writing a good script, an undeniable script, but like, hey, this script has a lead part that this fancy person is going to read the script and go like, I want to play. that." Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of what happened with us was that okay. we, what I will say is the, the thing we're, we're writing is in the sports space. OK, cool. the intersection of sports and pop culture and, and, uh, and new media and all those things. Oh, cool. And at the first meeting we had with the production company, it's still I think the highest compliment we were paid, which is this production company had been looking to do something, something related to sports for, for quite a while, but they felt a lot of the material they were getting was fairly insulting for them. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of like a cheerleader who inherits an NFL team, a reporter who's having sex with like all the players on the basketball team, like just sort of salacious, insulting stuff. Mm -hmm. And by the by, our project is a very female um, driven project. Oh, cool. cool. And therefore the, the, the stories we're telling, I think are universal, but also yeah. we were very interested in, in, in doing something from, from the perspective of, of women and mm-hmm. so the production company we went to, um, which was headed by women. They paid us such a great compliment because they've been looking for all these different types of scripts and felt that these other scripts they were looking at were salacious or sort of insulting right. for them as, as female creators. Mm-hmm. What they said about our script was, this was the first thing that we had read that felt like the conversations we have about sports. Oh, wow. awesome. That's awesome. That's very cool. And I felt, I, yeah, we felt really great about yeah. that. That's, well, that's really exciting. exciting. I'm excited to see that whenever it does come out. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> all right. Well, we have a couple more questions for we get to the movie. Um, one, this is a question we like to ask all of our guests. Um, do you have any moments from your career that are either a favorite moment uh, where you're like, I can't believe this is the job I get to do every day, or you know, this is the job I get to do, or one where you're like, I can't believe this is my job right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm lucky enough I get to do scenes at the actor's studio. Yeah. I love lore and I love history. So, like, yeah. not only like do I go to the actor's studio and do scenes, but like I am very appreciative of like the history of it, right? Of what Stanislavski was doing, of what how that relates to Eleanor Duza, how that relates to the group theater, how that relates to to Cassini, right? So I. I'm never unaware of that when I walk into the actor's studio. That's why I went there. Yeah. Uh, it was my appreciation of it. And I, so whenever I'm in New York at the actor's studio, there's always a moment when I stand in that space and I look and I turn around at the, the back brick wall. Yeah. And I always just take a moment of like, Paul Newman acted in here. Yeah. Ellen Burstyn. I've seen Ellen Burson do work in here. Ah, uh, crazy. Rehearse from like, like day one rehearsals, right? Where she was making mistakes and she was, right? I'm never unaware of that, right? This is, this place was born because 
Ilya Kazan needed to teach actors how to do a streetcar named Desire. So I've had moments like that that are just kind of for me. I remember specifically there was a, a play we were workshopping. It was about a family of, of cops. And I remember it was me and uh, my father was played by Stephen Lang. Nice. Who's one of the great American actors. And my grandfather, his father is played by John Mahoney. Wow. And the play was written not by a playwright. It was written by Jimmy Breslin, the great uh, New York uh, reporter, newspaper reporter. And I had always been an actor who wanted to go to New York, wanted to be a, a theater New York actor. Again, that's why like Billy Crudup and Philip Seymour Hoffman yeah. were my guys, right? And there was just this moment of sitting there. Jimmy was talking to us about the play. It was being directed by Lee Grant, by the way, who is an astonishing, astounding woman um, and just a, an artist of great stature. And so we're sitting in the studio and it's me, John Mahoney, Stephen Lang just at this table. And there was just a moment of me going like, this is everything I've ever wanted. <laughs> and nobody's here. We're not recording. Uh -huh. We never produced the play. I don't think we ever even workshopped the play for an audience, but just working on that was that, that was a private moment where yeah. I'm like, this is everything I've wanted to do. Yeah. One other moment that was in a professional setting that I was proud of because I got to take care of another actor. Yeah. Uh, when we were shooting Doe, it's an independent movie I did a few years ago. Um, and it was me, Tatiana Ali, uh, Mira Servino, and Matthew St. Patrick. The two things I remember from that, I had such, we had such a great experience filming that movie. The two things I remember was, um, I was pre-cast in the movie and we were auditioning people for, for these parts. And one of the parts was my brother-in-law who's a detective in the movie. And one of the audition sides was a confrontation between me and my brother-in-law. And so we were, uh, I came in cause like I had already been cast. So we were doing chemistry tests, um, with the other actors. And there was like three actors up for this part. And Matthew came in and he gave such a wonderful read. And it's weird when you're, reading for somebody's audition, right? Because you want to be of service to them, but you also, part of being service is you doing the scene, you playing your character, yeah. right? recognizing it's not your scene, right? So it's this weird negotiation a little bit of, of how you um, serve your partner, but also part of your serving, uh, part of you serving your partner is doing your own, your own work and letting them respond to that. So I remember we're doing the scene and Matthew was uh, for the audition and Matthew was going, I felt like he was going really slow, but it was also really wonderful and very lived in and just really, but there was a point where like, I couldn't tell if he had lost his line or not, oh, yeah. or if he was just sitting in it. And so I waited and I waited and I felt like he had lost his line. And so I just went to the next line I, and he goes, and he, I remember him going, no, nah, man, no, nah, don't jump in like that. Let it, let it breathe. And I was like, I love this dude. <laughs> <laughs> and so we did the scene. And when we did that, we finished the scene. And that day for his chem read, I'm there. The director, who's also the writer, was there. The producer was there. The casting director was there. And they just had an instinct, I think. And they said, Tim, do you want us to get up and just do the scene with him? We'll just record the scene. Get up from behind camera and get up with him. I'm like, yeah, no problem. I'll get up. So I got up and we did the scene. We get to the end of the scene. And the way the scene ends is like, we're not entirely we haven't resolved our tension with each other okay. still. And so the scene ends and he's got the last line 
and he says whatever he says. So I sort of go to like walk out of camera fame, which is what it would have happened in the movie. And I just sort of buttoned it. I just sort of said something in response to his last line. And he grabbed me and he goes, hey. And he said something in character to me. And I turned and I looked at him and we improv for about another 10 minutes. Wow. And we got done and the room was silent. And it's what booked the part for Matthew. I wish I could someday see that footage because again, none of that footage is in the film. Uh Right. We went on a 10 minute improv that just felt like some of the most magical stuff that we ever got to do. That's cool. Another thing that happened on set, this was how it was was explained to me. So we're shooting the movie and it's, again, it's an independent movie. It's not a big budget. And there was a scene we had near the end of the movie that this one scene was going to be like a third of the budget. It takes place like on this high rise uh, uh, corporate building. We needed the whole floor of the corporate building. It had a roof that had a helipad on it and we needed access to the roof to shoot stuff. And the scene was also like, if you think of the movie, like a video game, like this scene was taking place with like the big boss at the end of the movie. And it's like a big five page scene where I find out like finally what's happened to me. And I get answers about, right. What this whole mystery has been and why they've done this thing to me. And, you know, they're trying to get a big name to play the part of like the, the, the big boss, the villain in the movie. And I don't know who it was supposed to be, but apparently at the last moment, that actor got another job or was unavailable or something happened. They couldn't do it. And so all of a sudden the whole production, we've got a problem because we've reserved this huge costly space for this day. Yeah. And we can't move from this day. Wow. And so now they've got to go find another big name actor because it's how they're going to help sell the movie. Cause like mm-hmm. I ain't saw the movie, <laughs> right? <laughs> they've got to find an actor who's available on this day at the last second, the actor they get for it is Mira Sorvino. First off, I've been a fan of Mira Sorvino since like, even before I started acting. Yeah. Right. Loved her. Thought she was so fantastic in everything she did in Romeo and Michelle's. Yes, you know, I love that movie. <laughs> one of those actors, like when you first start acting, like and you fantasize about who you'd like to work with. Yeah. And so she winds up taking the part. And so now, again, I'm so lucky, right? Yes. I get to see yeah. like, one of my heroes. And the way it was explained to me was she took this role at the last minute. It's a five-page scene. It's a big-ass scene that is most of the two of us squaring off and talking. So she gets there. And I think she's barely had time to look at this. And so she's under a lot of stress. She's a consummate professional, an amazing actor. And she's literally trying to get these lines in her head. Meanwhile, we had shot like 20 days at this point. I had, we had had such a good time. I was so tight with the crew. So everything was lovely, but I can see she's tense. And so we're running the scene. We're running the scene. We're running the scene. And because of the cost of the day, I see production trying to push us to start shooting. And at some point they came over like, okay, guys, we're going to go in a minute. And I saw on her face being like, yo, I am not ready to go. It was a really unfair position to put her in because like she was saving the movie. Right. Right. So I saw it on her face and I just leaned over to her and I said, Hey, I love everybody on this set. We've had such a great time, but you're saving this movie. Yeah. If you didn't show up today, we wouldn't be able to do this movie. So as much as I love everybody, you and me are going to sit here and we're going to do this scene just you and me until you feel comfortable. And then, and only then will we call crew over and say, we're ready to shoot. How about that? And she looked at me and there was just this look of relief on her face. And she said, thank you. 
And so we just ran it, ran it, ran it, ran it, ran it. By the way, she crushed the scene. She's so good in the movie. Yeah. She's so good. <laughs> she just needed the 15 minutes. So like, I need to run this scene a bunch. Yeah. Please push me into shooting this yet. Right. And so for me, I felt lucky that I get, yeah, not only did I get to work with one of my heroes, but I felt like I got to take care of them mm-hmm. in a moment where like they needed that. That just felt really good. I felt lucky about that. Very cool. Well, Tim, I have one more question for you before we move on to talk about our movie. And you've already given a lot of good advice as well as cautioned about some advice Mm -hmm. as well. But what advice do you offer when people ask, you know, I'm interested in getting into either acting or writing or just the entertainment industry in general? What advice do you have for people who want to do that? You have a choice of always either being an amateur. I think Seth Godin says amateur professional or a hack i prefer to use it in terms of acting as an artist or a craftsman or a hack <laughs> and the people paying project allows me to determine what my function is when i show up on set now yeah. i never want to be a hack yeah. hack means like you're showing up this is not my artistic ambition and i don't really care about yeah. you know putting forth a good performance we never want to be a hack no but i think the people pray pay and project allows me to determine, am I an artist or am I a craftsman? Am I an artist? This means I need to satisfy my artistic ambitions. This is for me. And sometimes I've gotten to do that. When I've been a lead in films, I've gotten to do that, right? When I'm writing a thing and it's my draft, I get to do that. This one's for me. This is what Mm -hmm. I want to see in the screen. This is how I think the scene needs to go. Other times I'm a craftsman, right? On Billions, again, it's never about me. My job is to show up and go, this is the story they're telling. It doesn't matter what my ambitions are. I am not the showrunner here. I am not the lead of the show. My job is to execute as organically, as technically proficient as I possibly can. But my job is to be a craftsman today. That helps me keep my sanity and also understand my purpose on set or in the rehearsal room. It also helps me determine, (laughs) I think when you're beginning, right? The people pray and project and whether you're an artist or craftsman or a hack will help you from doing too many short films yeah. where you wind up like on set in somebody's backyard at 3 a.m. <laughs> you're like, I'm not getting paid for this. I got to go to work at nine in the morning yeah. and I'm going to get one shred of usable footage out of this. What the <laughs> fuck did I do this for? <laughs> I think the other thing I would say is you got to train all the time. Yeah. Mm. And we, we, we sort of started with that. I'm amazed at the actors who aren't in class all the time. Yeah. I've had people who are, you know, professionals tell me that like, really, are you still in class? I'm like, yeah, yeah. I, again, you know, if, if, if you don't have to get ready, if you're always ready. Right. Right. Again, to, to make a sports analogy, right? Like we make fun of those athletes that show up out of shape for training camp Mm -hmm. and play their ways in a, in a shape. Right. We're like, why would you ever do that? Well, why would you not act until you got a job? Why would you not act until you got an audition? Mm -hmm. Get yourself in class. Get yourself in class. Yeah. And the last thing I would say is just remember that this career is nonlinear. Right. Mm -hmm. Get comfortable with the discomfort that we will probably never be satisfied. Yeah. You will book a thing and then wonder why it's taking you long to book your next thing. Right. You will book a thing and wonder why it's not a bigger thing. Yeah. You will book that thing and then... You know, you, you'll get your show and your show will get canceled. Yeah. It's not a linear path. And this is a thing that I, I learned from jujitsu is it's not who's best. It's who's left. Mm-hmm. 
Let's get to our featured film. Today we're discussing the 1989 comedy drama Do the Right Thing. It was written and directed by Spike Lee, and it stars Danny Aiello, Ossie Davis, and Ruby Dee. It was nominated for two Oscars for Best Actor in a Supporting Role and Best Writing of a Screenplay Written Directly for the Screen. So, Susan, can you tell us a, bit, a quick breakdown? What's this movie about? Yes, so um, this movie takes place on just like a few blocks of the Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood in Brooklyn. It's like the hottest day of summer, and they keep emphasizing it's so hot. It's so hot. The heat is just like overbearing. Um, and we're seeing the interactions of a lot of people in this neighborhood. Um, we open on Samuel Jackson's character. He's a radio DJ, and he's he's almost like a narrator over this whole movie. His name is Mr. Senor Love Daddy. So he's on the radio the whole time, and he opens talking about the heat and how you can't let the heat get to you, and you got to have to figure out how to beat it. So that's sort of the undercurrent. And then we also meet Mookie, who is a neighborhood guy, and he works. He lives there with his sister. He works at a uh, Sal's Famous Pizza. Sal is an Italian-American. He owns this pizza parlor. He's owned it like 25 years in this neighborhood. Um, all the kids in the neighborhood have grown up eating his pizza, and his two sons also work with him. One son, very much not into living in this black neighborhood. The other son is friends with Mookie. A lot of tension between those two and the dad. A lot of tension, racial tension between the dad and the neighborhood, even though he does, he does seem to love these kids for most of the movie or have an affection toward them, but also you know, there's these, you know, these racial undertones that are present throughout the movie. Um, but the conflict really starts when bugging out, one of the characters sees the wall of famous notable people inside Sal's and it's all Italian Americans. And he's like, why don't you have any black people on this wall? We're the people that frequent your business. We should be represented. Sal says, absolutely not. I'm proud of my Italian heritage. Only Italian Americans up on the wall. That really triggers this whole uh, tension between those two characters uh, there's another character named Radio Rahim who gets uh, drawn in to this protest that Bugging Out's trying to organize. And with this heat, the tension builds and builds and builds. And then it really blows up at the end um, into... Quite literally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, it does. Um, I'm sure we'll get into talking about it specifically, but a lot of really amazing characters. Also, a lot of famous people in this movie. We yes. listed three, but we could have listed the whole cast. Uh, you're watching it and you're like, oh, there's John Turturro. There's Rosie Perez. Like, really amazing. Yeah. Tim, you chose Do the Right Thing for us to watch today. Why did you choose this film? Two reasons. Yeah. One, I just think it's one of the great American films. Yes. yes. Yeah, totally. Um, it's as... Unfortunately, as relevant today as the day. Yeah, it's super relevant. Yeah. And also, it's just it's just a stunning piece of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. uh, the writing is so good. Mm -hmm. The cinematography is so beautiful. Yeah. Beautifully shot picture. The, I think so many of the performances in it are just are astounding. Like you said, even in terms of the casting, like Spike Lee's eye of like Giancarlo Esposito is in yeah. this movie. Right. Right. is in this movie, right? Sam Jackson. None of these people are the, are the famous people they would become. Right, right. Rosie Perez does, mm -hmm. right? The eye he has of casting just wonderful actors. Um, it's just a, a, a really well-made film that I think is one of the great American films. This film was also incredibly uh, impactful on me. Yeah. Not only in terms of uh, it's cultural impact, but how I approach acting and writing. When I first saw this movie, and I don't remember when I first saw it, but I, was, I was pretty young. I was obsessed with the big question that many people have at the end of the movie, right? So as you said, the movie ends with this, this fight at the pizzeria mm -hmm. where uh, a, a brawl breaks out, the police are called, uh, the police kill 
uh, Radio Rahim, yeah. uh, played by the great Bill Nunn. Uh, right. He's going to strangle him in, in a yeah. cold, which, I mean, dear God, of the past couple of years. Like, I know. Yeah, watching the ending now is yeah. Yeah. still I mean, so relevant. 100% yeah. relevant, yeah. And then they, you know, the police leave. They take away, you know, uh, a poor Radio Rahim's body. Mm-hmm. And everybody is left there with this rage and this, you know, um, that doesn't have a direction to go. Yeah. And then Mookie, Spike Lee's character, seemingly from my perspective, out of nowhere, picks up a trash can and throws it through, through the window of Sal's famous pizzeria. Right. Despite the fact that he seemed to be friendly with Sal, Sal and him mm-hmm. had a great relationship, right? Um, seems to come out of nowhere. It didn't seem like it was Sal's fault, even though, you know, Sal's refusal to put you know, yeah. black people on the wall and his, his fight with Giancarlo Esposito's bugging out is what that feud is what, what, what ignited this brawl and, mm-hmm. you know, brought the cops in, in front of the pizzeria. It didn't seem directly Sal's fault. And so I wasn't, I was mystified why Mookie threw the trash can to the window, mm-hmm. which then sparks are, you know, a, a near riot, right? They, yeah. they right. The pizzeria. And I was obsessed with this idea. And especially when you're young, I was so, like I said before, I was so interested in being great. I was so interested in being smart. I was so interested in getting it. And, you know, when you're young and male and white, and there aren't a whole lot of barriers to you having opinions, mm-hmm. right? I, I was just formulating all these opinions about stuff. And I think around the same time that I saw it do the right thing for the first time, I was, I was in school. And so I saw He Got Game. Yeah. Great Spike Lee movie. And I wasn't completely clear the ending of that either. And so being like 20 years old, right. Just starting like my acting career. I had, and by starting my acting career, I meant like I had like been in an undergraduate acting class for three months. <laughs> sure. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but, right? um, but I already have ambitions of being Le- Edward Norton and being Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio. It was important to have all these great ideas. And so I'd come up with this idea that like, well, I think Spike's a great filmmaker, but he's, his plots are incoherent. He doesn't know how to end a movie. I feel like I'd probably read some white, you know, film critics say that at some point who also misunderstood Spike's yeah. movie. And sure. so I incorporated that because that made me sound smart. So then cut to a couple years later, I'm at the actor Studio Drama School. And one of the guests is going to be Spike Lee. Awesome. Ah. Amazing. <laughs> so I'm excited. Yeah. I know we're going to talk about Do the Right Thing. And Spike Lee, I know James Lipton will ask him. We're going to talk about the ending of Do the Right Thing. And I know he's going to have an answer. So... I go to that taping. By the way, if you ever see that taping, um, there's a moment where Spike Lee calls out somebody in the audience for wearing a, a Boston Red Sox hat. That is me. Oh, my God. <laughs> not, not to troll him. I usually, before, uh, after classes were over, I would go to the, at the time it was a YMCA. I think it's a, uh, a David Barton's now. But there was a gym on 23rd and 7th that I would go work out at. Hmm. And then would come back for whatever workshop we were doing. And so I usually, because like I was a sweaty, sweaty mess, I just put my, my ball cap on him sure. from Boston. So it'd be a Red Sox cap. So I wasn't yeah. trying to troll him. I just come from the gym. But he, if you ever see that and he's like, take off the Red Sox cap, he was, <laughs> it was me. Um, <laughs> I did not take the cap off, by the way. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so we're talking about Spike Lee's film career and we get to do the right thing. And I lean forward and James Lipton asks him, why does Mookie throw the trash can to And I'm ready. I am ready. And Spike goes, it's all there if you want to see it. Yeah. That's not an answer. That's bullshit. Yeah. I knew. And for me, at my young, inchoate, incomplete, 
artistic developed mind. I was like, there you have it. Spike does not end a movie. Live in New York a few years, things happen. And I go back and I watch the movie again. And it just hit me. I never asked why the cops killed Radio Ray. Mm -hmm. Because I felt like I knew that answer. Oh, it felt like an easily arrived at answer that we knew that. But what's, what's so amazing about do the right thing is it's a Rorschach test, right? And I, I read this later on that Spike said that no, no black person who had seen the film had never asked him why Mookie threw the trash can through the window. Mm -hmm. Only white people had asked him that. I didn't feel as if I were racist, but I think probably most people who have a racial bias don't feel that. Right. Sure, of course. Yeah. You know, that, that's Malcolm X's whole thing about the dangers of the white moderate. Yeah. Right. It stunned me when I realized that, that like, oh, I didn't see that, that I was more worried. I was more concerned about the destruction of property mm -hmm. than I was about the destruction of a person. Mm -hmm. I was more worried about what happened to Sal's pizzeria than I was about what happened to Radio Raheem. Yeah. It's so genius that Spike ends, ends the movie as a Rorschach test. Mm -hmm. What I learned from that was, A, I got to go do more work. But also part of the work that I got to do, aside from a person, is what I became obsessed with is that now whenever I'm acting, whenever I'm writing, whenever I'm working something, I want to research the hell out of it. Yeah. Mm. I want to know where the writer's coming from. I want to know where the filmmaker's coming from. I want to know what other pieces that they've done. I want to know how they grew up and formed their work. Mm -hmm. Because Spike's point is, if you grew up Black in America, if you grew up the way Spike did, you don't have that question. Yeah. Right. In terms of culture, in terms of civil rights, in terms of um, uh, equality and racial justice in this country, it was a huge turning point for me. So that movie in those two ways has shaped me. I love that you called it a comedy drama because so much of this movie is so goddamn funny. Yeah. It's so funny. The scene with Frank Vincent, mm -hmm. the great Frank Vincent, where the kids soak his, 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 uh, yes, his uh, vintage yeah, car, yeah. his antique yeah. car. That scene, a resonates is so truthful to me in terms of the conversation he has with the cops afterwards with, which like, I have grown up with so many people from New York, right? Again, I moved there as soon as I could. I know so many Italians from New York. I know so many people like Frank Vincent. And what's amazing about them is what I recognize in Frank, and it's so great that Spike captured this, is like, one, A, that scene is not a joke to Frank Vincent. Mm -hmm. Right. But it is also so fucking funny. Yeah. And I that those conversations with those people were like, listen, I know this is so direly serious, but also you're fucking hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that Frank Vincent is like, when the cops ask him, you know, did you get their names? Yeah. Right. So ridiculous. It's like, I don't know, Mo and Joe. Yeah. Yeah. Also leads to like, like that's, it doesn't feel explicitly racist, but it feels yeah, it feels a little bit racist. There's something yeah. there, yeah. And then the, the, the cop goes, did you get their last name? And he goes, Mo and Joe Black, which now that feels explicitly yeah. racist. Right. The black gets me. And then the fact that the cop goes, so they were brothers. <laughs> obviously has the double entendre of yeah. like Mo and Joe Black, or both, but also like, you know, and you see Frank Vincent's face, he goes, yeah, they were brothers. And like, I recognize that it's such a truthful New York thing of A, I hate every second of this moment yeah. as a person. It's so deadly serious. It's also fucking hilarious. I'm also mortified that it is hilarious. Yeah. And that 
in this terribly serious situation where I want the kids buried under the jail, as he says, he still recognizes the humor of the double entendre. Mm-hmm. That writing is so great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this movie is format. This movie is so great because it, it spends the first 90% of the movie establishing all of the relationships in the neighborhood and, you know, setting up everything. And then it throws it all into this wild, energizing, you know, terrifying ending. But along the way, you really fall in love with all these characters and they all play off each other so well and they're all so well defined mm-hmm. and they all have very specific roles in the neighborhood. And you just see, you know, but it's just, it kind of, you know, one piece at a time, sort of, you know, on these relationships start crossing over and the characters start running into each other. And even like the cops are a reoccurring character. And at first it's played for laughs, but then they come back and you can see, you know, that, that moment where they, yeah. they, they lock eyes on the street with the, the three gentlemen on the, on the corner. Mm-hmm. And they have that, you know, moment, which is, um, again, another uh, racism driven moment. And then to, towards the end where the cops really, um, go over the over the top of the violence. It's just such a powerful film that really leads to this, this ending. But what my favorite moment? I'm going to ask you guys your favorite moment. But my favorite moment actually happens right after that, after the, the you know big um, fire at Sal's and, and the the killing of Radio is you know the resolution between Sal and uh, Mookie because up to that point you know I mean right before the the fight breaks out and things go crazy, you know Sal's calling Mookie like like a son he refers to him like a son and so they have this relationship and the whole time they've been bickering back and forth and and you know playfully but then the relationship drastically shifts exactly what you just talked about tim with um with you know mookie actually breaking the window and starting starting that riot essentially um but then at the end of that where you know where mookie's like i'm gonna go get paid and he shows up mm-hmm. and you know sal's just utterly defeated because his his shop is burned down his pizza parlor is burned down and starts rolling up the the 50s and throwing them at him or no it's the hundreds right hundreds. Throw, rolling up the hundreds and throwing them at him and then he throws them back and then there's just this moment of finally they get to kind of an understanding um and i love 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 the shot at the end of it where mookie goes and and you know picks up the extra dollars uh that fell on the ground and, and walks away with them um, i think that's just such a powerful moment in the film um, and something that, you know, even after all that violence, I still wanted those characters to have, have a relationship, have some kind of resolve. Right. And and that film really pays it off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that scene, too. It's so surreal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what I love about the, the movie in general that relates to that scene, too, and, and, and a lot of the Sal character, right, is that. Spike really wrote completely three-dimensional people, right? Yes, does, yes. does think, think of Mookie as a son, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Mookie does have affectionate relations, an affectionate relationship with Sal and with, uh, uh, not Pino, but uh, the other brother. I can't remember Vito. the other brother. Vito. Vito, yeah. right? But then at the same time, right, when Sal is talking to Jade, yeah. right? Uh, it's just it's it's so great how like each given circumstance shifts the alliances yeah totally pino and mookie are on the same side because they're both watching sal and jade talk to each other yeah. and they both, they have both don't like it yeah the potential sexual impropriety of that mm-hmm. right what i also love about the movie is just again like how even the characters that are so hateable like pino like there's moments we get to have so much fun with them. Like when Mookie and Pino were having that conversation about how like um, all of Pino's favorite 
you know, artists and athletes are black. Right. It's so delightful. The other scene I love in the movie, first of all, my favorite scene in the movie is probably um, when the great John Savage steps on uh, bugging out in Giancarlo Esposito's shoes. That's a great, mm. yeah. Messes up his, his Nikes. Hey, that scene is just so goddamn funny. Nobody says Massachusetts funnier than, than Giancarlo. Yeah. <laughs> but again, even just, even just the line of like the guy of, of, of the crowd behind Giancarlo Esposito when they confront John Savage. And he's like, those cost $100. And the other guy's like, I'll give him 100 headaches. It's just <laughs> goddamn funny. And the fact that like John Savage is wearing like the, the like a Larry Bird t-shirt, right? Which, which says yeah. so much about, you know, about culture at that time again. Yeah. Again, who you like and what it says about you. Um, I love that scene. Uh, uh, gotcha, Carla Esposito is so good. The other scene I want to point out is the, the scene between Sal and Pino, mm. where Pino tells Sal, we should, that, that scene actually works me up a bit because- yeah. Um, Cause it's not just Sal and Pino. It's also when the great Roger Guinevere Smith mm-hmm. uh, shows up with the, the, the picture. Yes. Is that smiley? Smiley. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, what's crazy is from what I understand is that character is not originally in the screenplay. Oh, wow. Apparently Roger Guinevere Smith lived around the corner from where they were shooting and showed up every day on set and advocated for himself to be in the movie. Mm-hmm. And that's what they wrote for him. Wow. Crazy because I don't, and I think he might have had a huge hand in like creating that character, yeah. which really doesn't work, right? Without that character, that character, as it relates to that scene, right? The reason that I love that scene is first of all, that scene does not need to exist. No. It speaks so much to Spike's generosity. Yeah. This is a movie about race relations, right? And so much about race relations in America, right, is about the horrific treatment of black people in this country, about ind- indigenous people in this country, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's what makes a lot of white critics mad and what made me yeah. miss what this movie is about in the first place. He does not need to include a scene then of Sal saying, I'm proud to feed these people. I'm proud to do that. Mm-hmm. Doesn't need to do that in this movie, but he does. Right. And then you have Smiley show up with the picture of Martin and Malcolm. Mm-hmm. And they literally can't understand him. They literally can't understand what he's trying to say. Mm-hmm. They literally can't understand what Martin and Malcolm mean. And for so many reasons, I, I love that scene. There's also other little moments, uh, you know, in, in terms of like just enjoying the characters when, when mm-hmm. the great Ozzie Davis, right, stops Mookie and, and says the line in the movie, always do the right thing. Yeah. I just love Spike. I love Spike's performance. And he's like, that's it. He's like, that's it. He goes, I got it. I'm gone. <laughs> I don't, that just feels like so many interactions I had in New York. Mm. Yeah. Susan, did you have a favorite scene? I mean, the ones you guys already mentioned, obviously amazing. Um, just, I mean, the opening credits with mm-hmm. Rosie Prez, this was her first, I think her first big movie. Correct. Yeah. No, her first movie ever. So I thought those are really really cool to watch really fun to watch um i love when radio raheem's explaining his two rings yeah uh, the love and hate Uh, i thought that was a really cool scene too um and really showed because his character didn't until the end until the culminating scene um at the pizza place his character didn't talk that much Mm -mm. so that was kind of his first big kind of a monologue almost in the middle of the movie yeah i mean he kind of had i mean his boombox was his character right right right. yeah just doing um So I really liked that scene too. But yeah, I mean, the whole movie looks 
amazing. It's all it's all shot on like one one or two blocks of a real neighborhood, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and I love how like Heat itself is like a character mm-hmm. in this movie because it, it's like it drives everybody to their most extremes, and they you know they repainted a real neighborhood to like look hot, you know, with that, those yellows and those browns yeah. and reds. Um, and so it's such an important element of the film that really uh, feeds um, feeds everything that happens. Yeah. yeah. Go watch it if you haven't seen it. Go or if watch you've seen it. it, watch it again. We like to finish up our show today with a game that we're calling Filmagories. We're going to see how many movies of a certain category you guys can name. So, Tim, you'll be playing against Susan. So here are the rules. I'm going to give you a category of film. You will go back and forth naming movies that fit that category until someone runs out of films. Whereas the last answer will get a point. I have five categories for today's game, and the person with the most points at the end will win our prize. So, Susan, what is our prize? Uh, prize is some Life in the Credits merchandise, like a shirt or a mug or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll send you something in the mail. So generous. <laughs> now, Tim, you are going to go first. So your first category is movies that take place during medieval times. The Northman. Does Shakespeare in Love count? As, I'll count it. That's that, fine. That's not okay. technically medieval, yeah. but it's fine. Dungeons and Dragons coming out this summer. Yep. The Green Knight? Yes. Okay. 100% yes. Bertolucci's Hamlet, 91. Oh, nice. Well, I don't know what... The Baz Luhrmann, Romeo and Juliet... It's not really medieval. No, times. it is not, not take place in medieval times at all. You have another and I guess? Don't, um, that takes place in like the yeah, 90s. Yeah, that's the 90s. It's just, I was trying to think of the, uh, the other version that would qualify. Ever After? Yes. Okay. That is, that is that's a Drew Barrymore yep. movie. Uh, let me think. Um, oh, what's the, the one with, not, uh, what's the, the Heath Ledger movie? Yep. Is it called First Night? No, but that's a different movie. That is a movie. You are thinking of Knight's Tale. Yes. Uh, which is which is technically medieval times, but historically a little. <laughs> First Night is still good, though, because that's Sean Connery and yeah. Richard Gere. But okay. all right, back to you, Tim. Okay. Uh, the Last Duel. Yes, oh, very good. Oh, excellent, Paul. I'm sorry, Susan's yeah, out. Tim, you get a point. Um, yeah. So great job. Um, there are a million more medieval movies. I'm sure there are. Um, I'm, I'm surprised someone didn't say Robin Hood or something like uh, that. But that's okay. Um, or King Arthur, you know, Holy Grail. doesn't matter. Yeah. You guys did very, very well. That was a strong first round. Your second category, and Susan, you're starting this time. Okay. Is movies that feature a wedding. My best friend's wedding. My best friend's wedding is good. Tim? Uh, four weddings and a funeral. Very oh, good. Oh, nice. Father of the Bride? Yes. Probably can't say Father of the Bride too. Uh, the Wedding Singer. Yes. Oh, nice. Uh, I think it's called Monster in Law. It's a J Lo movie. I'll trust okay. you. <laughs> uh, Bridesmaids. Yes. Oh, yes, excellent. Uh, the Wedding Planner, another yes. Jennifer Lopez movie. Just <laughs> <laughs> gonna go through all of J Lo's yeah. categories. Uh, my Big Fat Greek Wedding. Oh, Absolutely. Nice. Oh, uh, Mamma Mia. Yep. Okay. Yep. I haven't seen that. There's a wedding in that. Uh, I think it's is. all based like the daughter's wedding is like the main plot point. That's correct. Okay. Uh, wedding Crashers. Oh, nice. Features a wedding. Which is approximately half of all movies. Yeah, it is. Um, Runaway. I already said Runaway Bride. No, you did. Runaway Bride. Okay. The Godfather. Yes. Oh. <laughs> Good pull. 
I gotta reach deep into my rom-com knowledge for this. Doesn't have to be a rom-com. I know, but those are likely to have a wedding feature. Tommy Boy has a wedding right at the beginning. Yes, it does. (laughs) Sure does. I love Tommy Boy. (laughs) Uh, 27 dresses. Oh, nice. I don't remember. Okay, Susan's out. That means, Tim, you got a second point. This is tough. This is hard, yeah. Very good. All right. Your third category, and Tim, you'll need one more point to win, but we're going to go to five just for fun. But Susan, you got to step it up. Okay. Tim, you're starting this one. Your category is movies where a character changes sizes. Changes sizes? Yes. Captain America Civil War. Very good. Uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Absolutely, yes. Uh... Clifford the Big Red Dog, does the dog change sizes? Oh, he 100%. does drastically, yes. Um, Ant-Man? Yes. Okay. Excellent. Uh, Attack of the 50-foot woman. Very good. Honey, I blew up the kids. Can I do the sequel? <laughs> We're not going to do sequels. Oh, okay, no sequels. Because otherwise it'll just be That's true, yeah, sequel yeah. Um, Alice in Wonderland, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep, I, absolutely. I make it true. Does Shallow Howl count? <laughs> Sure. Oh, it does because that's yep. like, yeah. That does um, count. That's awful. <laughs> yeah, that movie. It counts. Is special, it counts. But, um, change sizes, and I pr- uh, it has to be drastically. No. Oh, so can we do Benjamin Button? Because he yes. Okay. Ooh, good one. Yeah, I guess uh, that is drastic. He turns into a yeah. Baby. He does. That's drastic. Uh, dodgeball. Yes. Yes. It's too bad they haven't made a Magic School Bus movie yet, because that would be <laughs> <laughs> definitely be a contender. All right. Yes. Five yeah, I think seconds. I, I think I'm out. You're out. <laughs> All right. So. Tim, that's your third point and you win. But just for fun, we're going to do the last two okay. categories. So maybe I can redeem myself a little bit. Susan's letting me win this, by the way. I thought she's letting me. She's I'm, not, I'm really I'm she's really trying not. very hard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, Susan. Your next category okay. is movies that feature a bank robbery. Um, Oceans, well, Oceans Eleven. That's a yes. bank, right? Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's a casino bank. Okay. But I will count. But it's it. a vault. Yep. Out of town. Yes. Do they rob a vault in Batman? Uh, in well, not the first one. Not nineteen eighty nine, but yep, the Batman and Robin. I'm just going to end up guessing. I, oh, rather, I just guess all the Batman movies. Because surely they've robbed a vault in one of those. In, um, the, in the Dark Knight. Okay, uh, that's a, what it is. There's a very famous. Yes. Bank. Why am I blanking? Is Now You See Me? Do they rob a yes, vault? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Heat. Uh, oh, Heat. Talk about one of the all-time yes. best movies ever made. Oh. All right, I Susan. I have think not we- seen a lot of heist movies. And I'm guessing like Indiana Jones... That's not, not a, a bank. Vault. No, no. It's not a bank vault. No. It's so. Sort of a vault. I've. You're out. Okay. All right. That, that, that's a fourth point for Tim. Now, the question is can Tim just run the Close game the, yeah. and get all five categories? So, the hardest one I saved for last. Oh, all right. Great. So, you, Tim, you're starting. <laughs> but, but here is your category. This is in honor of Do the Right Thing now. Okay. So, this is movies where the director also acts in the film. Ah. So, Tim. Does it have to be a big part? No. Okay. Robert De Niro, The Good Shepherd. Very good. Old school. Absolutely. Very (laughs) Very good. Oh, really? A very brief part uh, right at the beginning. So, the guy, when Luke Wilson comes home and finds his wife, 
essentially it's Todd cheating Phillips. on him. Todd yeah. Phillips is the guy at the door being like, I'm here for the... I'm here for the orgy. <laughs> yeah, that's Todd Phillips. Yeah. <laughs> um, Quentin Tarantino, Pulp Fiction. Excellent. Yep, perfect. Uh, Garden State. Yes. Zach Braff. Zach Braff. Um, Clint Eastwood, Unforgiven. Very good. Uh, Mall Rats. Yes, Kevin mm-hmm. Smith. Martin Scorsese, Taxi Driver. Excellent. Nice. Um, did Ben Affleck direct Argo? He sure okay. did. That's my answer. All right, sure. <laughs> Argo. <laughs> Can I say Ben Affleck at the town again? Is that cheating? Yeah. No, I don't no, think it's so. Because I just thought of that. Like, after I said Argo, I was like, oh, yeah, the town. I mean, Mel Brooks was in most of his movies. So Robin Hood Men in Tights? Was that? that yes, he, he, he that? plays the okay. rabbi. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Kenneth Branagh in Hamlet. Oh, nice. Excellent. I feel like I had this one. <laughs> oh, um, this is a new. I don't even think this movie's out yet, but don't worry, darling. And Olivia Wilde, she's in that movie and she directs oh, it. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Cool. I'll, I'll trust you. Uh, Bradley Cooper, Star is Born. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I think one. I'm out. Congratulations, Tim. That you was a closeout. One yeah. easily. Um, that was hard. It's a hard game. It's a hard game. <laughs> it was a hard game. I'm sweating. Yeah, great job, guys. Yeah, congratulations. That was, that was a good game. Oh. Well yeah, well yeah. Thank you. Well, before we let you go, Tim, is there anything that you would like to plug? At the moment, no. I kind of got my head down while I'm developing this this show. Yeah. Um, I'll be happy to let you know if and when. Please, we yes. Air. That's all right. That's, That's great. perfect. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This was awesome. You gave us such good insight and such good advice, and just a great look into like the day to day of an act, like a working actor. Like it was awesome. It, your, your questions are great. You guys are really genuine. Oh, thank uh, you. People, so I really appreciate doing this. So thank you. Life in the Credits is hosted and produced by me, Susan Swarner. And me, Ben Bloom. It's executive produced by Michelle Levin. The music is written and performed by Steve Trowbridge. You can hear more of Steve's music at TrowbridgeSounds.com. The show logo is created by Melissa Durkin. If you'd like to support Life in the Credits and get access to exclusive perks, you can do so at patreon.com. If you'd like to follow or get a hold of us, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life in the Credits or shoot us an email at lifeinthecredits at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Free range, urban crusted organic chicken breast, grilled asparagus tips, uh, and mashed potatoes. Enjoy. No problem. Now listen, I I don't mean to brag about this in any way, but I have played Hamlet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>